Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're devastated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We're fresh out of the movie theaters, I would say about an hour ago. It's the first time we've ever seen something together. Yes. In theaters. Uh Uh-huh. And what a time it was. We are definitely going to be using this episode as a coping mechanism (laughs) to kind of figure out how we feel, what we think about 2022's bones and all. Yes. We apparently didn't get enough during Cannibal Power Hour, (laughs) nor did we get enough with 2018's Suspiria with Luca Guadagnino and his crazy ass filmmaking, because this has both. It does have both. So yeah, Bones and All came out, what, like a week and a half ago at this point? Around there. By the time this goes out, it'll have been out maybe three weeks. But yes, a coming-of-age cannibal love story set in the Midwest during the 80s. I mean, wow. And I had two questions for Elise after we finished. (laughs) First of all, how dare you? (laughs) To Luca Guadagnino. And second, why can't I be a cannibal in the Midwest in the 80s? I don't know if my heart could take it. I think I would spontaneously combust from all of the beauty and simultaneous horror. Like, this is visceral, but not in the way that you would expect. I mean, I guess a little bit in the way that you'd expect, but it's so emotional. It is so emotional. We cried. We did cry. We we cried. We sat and we cried. Yeah, and I felt like my stomach was in my throat for at least an hour and a half. This movie is two hours and ten minutes. It does feel like it, but not in, like, a bad way. But it feels like it makes sense. Like, there's so much that happens. So I feel like the pacing accommodates that pretty well. So I do appreciate that there is matching energy there. They really want you to love these characters by the end. And it pays off. They do. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, goes without saying, spoilers coming at you. If you want to see this movie blind, like, like we Shane did, and I did, <laughs> we really did it. Don't listen to this. Come back later. But if you're ready for all the spoilers, <laughs> then stick around. Okay. So obviously, there isn't a lot out about this movie yet because it's in theaters, but I do have some pre plot trivia and info about our ladies. So there's three main ladies in this. Our main girl is Marin. She is played by Taylor Russell. She is also in Escape Room, an Escape Room Tournament of Champions, which I want us to cover. It's exactly what you think. It's an escape room (laughs) that tries to kill people. That sounds terrifying. It sounds like so much fun. Honestly, like if I played an escape room, I would think that I was going to die. You've never done an escape room? No, because I would, my heart would explode. And you know me, I get so competitive over the things that don't matter. I will ruin the game of Taboo. I will ruin the game of Monopoly. She will. I will ruin the escape. Like, I just like, sometimes it's like, you just have to like, keep it away. Right. So I have to keep myself away from From these spaces. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. Yeah. But maybe we'll watch it. Yeah. No, no, no. They're a lot of fun. I saw the first one. I haven't seen the second one. I mean, it's stupid, but a lot of fun in that way. Taylor Russell also won the Marcello Mastriani Award at the Venice Film Festival for her role in this film, and that award is given to an emerging actor or actress. I mean, she does an amazing job. She's really fucking good in this. I kept thinking she was Jenna Ortega, but she's not. Mm. I think Jenna Ortega is just everywhere with Wednesday right now. Yes. They're different. I feel like Jenna Ortega, in the roles that I've seen her in, she has such like an intensity. I feel like Taylor Russell, of course, she's still very intense, but there's so much more of a softness there. Which in this role made me just want to like hold her in my arms, even though she's a cannibal. (laughs) I think they're just both really expressive with their eyes. Mm, Like their eyes are just like really there. And Mm -hmm. again, I'm thinking about Wednesday because I just keep seeing that dance montage on TikTok right (laughs) now. (laughs) And then we have two smaller roles. We have Janelle who plays Marin's mother, who is played by Chloe Sevigny. She is in American Psycho, Zodiac, Anti-Birth, American Horror Story, Asylum, and Hotel. She's in so, so much. She's one of those that the Wikipedia goes to a separate page. And then we have Marin's grandmother, Barbara, and she is played by Jessica Harper. I thought it was Sally Field the whole time, (laughs) (laughs) but it's not. But it makes sense because I remember seeing older Jessica Harper in Suspiria 2018 and thinking that she looked like Sally Field, and it all came full circle. And I didn't know this was a thing. So Jessica Harper is also in this movie called Shock Treatment, which is a little known sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And she replaces Susan Sarandon as Janet in it. Okay. I just felt the need to include that because I thought that was super cool. So Bones and All is based off the 2015 novel by Camille DeAngelis. Luca Guadagnino adapted it. 
While awards are still pending, Luca Guadagnino did win Best Director at the Venice Film Festival, where the film premiered for his work on this film. Is this the same Venice Film Festival? Of Don't Worry Darling? Yeah. It has to be. I think it has to be. It has to be. Either way, deserve the win (laughs) from what we can tell. (laughs) And it's also Guadagnino's first work set in the United States, filming primarily in Ohio. Oh, okay. And it looked like it. So Guadagnino said of the film that Bones and All is a very romantic story about the impossibility of love and yet the need for it, even in extreme circumstances. <sighs> Which hurts so bad reading it really that. Does hurt. He also said that Chalamet and Russell have a gleaming power and are able to portray universal feelings, which, yes. Even though I thought Timothy Chalamet looked too much like Machine Gun Kelly in this movie <laughs> to the point where it was a little distracting for me. <laughs> And I just thought this was super cool. The film's score was composed by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and they are a powerhouse duo when it comes to film scores. They are also responsible for Nine Inch Nails, which are hugely influential to a lot of different music styles. They also did scores for The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and like literally so many others. If I remember correctly, their score for The Social Network did win the Academy Award. It did. Year. Mm-hmm. It did. Yep. <laughs> it absolutely did. And this one should too. Although our only gripe, and <laughs> you know what I'm about to say, is that this movie should be a companion piece to the album Preacher's Daughter by Ethel K. Yes, I agree. I feel like if a Phil Kane's album came out a year earlier, or if this movie came out a year later, I bet there would have been time to like include that in production. That's the thing though. Preacher's Daughter came out in like April or May of this year. I know, but like how long was this right. in post-production before right. it was released? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this could have been wrapped up like in April. I don't know. But I agree. And if you don't know who Ethel Kane is, go sit in a dark room <laughs> and listen to Preacher's Daughter and ruin your life. I ruined Elise's life by introducing her to her. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. But devastating. Yes, very devastating. And we originally heard Ethel Kane. Well, Shay told me about Ethel Kane, I should say, right after we were done with Cannibal Power Hour. Right. And she was like, listen, if you want an album that's like fresh and raw, but a musical album, listen to this. And it really is like that. So if you like that cannibal energy and really, really emotional, toxic love. Religious trauma. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Get on that. Preacher's Daughter. We like both drove separately to the theater and on the way back to record, we were both listening to it in our cars. Yes. (laughs) It works so well. It literally works so well with these two. Oh my gosh. So let's get into it. Let's. We are going to be referencing a plot summary from Wikipedia just because like we said, we just saw this in theater, so we weren't taking notes or anything. So we're going to do our best. So we start in 1980s Virginia. (laughs) Which, whenever I see the word Virginia, I say Virginia in my head. Did you know? Now I know. Now you know. And we start with Marin. We definitely spend the most time with her throughout the film. She lives with her father. We get the sense that she has just moved to a new school district. She meets a girl who sees her playing the piano in the auditorium. It seems like they have a budding friendship. It's really cute. She invites Marin over for a sleepover that night with some friends. Marin immediately is like, my dad's not going to let me go. But her friend encourages her to sneak out. I guess she lives nearby just up the hill. So she does. And she attends this party with these other girls. And they all seem really nice, which I was like, how refreshing. Yeah, they were really welcoming. Yeah, they were all so nice. We're also like very primed to not like Marin's dad because she has to sneak a screwdriver out of the closet to take screws out of her window so it will open. So we're like, oh my God, is this guy abusive? Oh, yes. And when he shuts her in her room at night after saying goodnight, he locks her in. Just adding on to that like very strange situation here. But then we get (laughs) what starts to look like a little bit of a sapphic scene. You have two girls laying on their backs on the floor. The other two girls are up painting each other's nails on the couch. And you can tell the one girl is really trying to connect with Marin. She's asking questions about her mom. She's saying that, you know, my mom left when I was a baby. I don't have very many memories with her. My dad doesn't talk about her. And you could tell there's a closeness that's forming. The girl that's laying on the ground is getting her nails painted by a girl that's sitting on the couch. And you can see that Marion keeps kind of snuggling a little bit closer, you know, positioning her face in the crook of this girl's neck. And it feels very intimate. It, it does. It doesn't feel like it's a dangerous thing. It kind of feels like, oh my gosh, we're sharing secrets and I don't have any close women in my life right now. This is really nice. 
(laughs) 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 And then, you know, the girl goes to show Marin her nail polish. And Marin takes the girl's hand in her hands and brings her fingers closer to her face and proceeds to bite her middle finger off. Of course, they're screaming. And I love this filming because the coffee table in front of the sofa is glass. Oh, right. Yeah. So you can see what's happening above the table and below the table, which I like. And so, of course, you see this girl and then you can see her friends look through the table to see what has happened. They're screaming. Marin immediately leaves, which also... I was like, Marin, why would you put the fingernail that just got fresh <laughs> polish on it in your mouth? Like, pick a different finger. So she runs away. She gets home, bangs on the door for her dad to let her in. Her dad opens the door, like immediately knows the genre of what Marin has just done. He's like, not again. You have three minutes to get your stuff together. We're out of here. When the police get here, we need to be long gone. We can tell this has happened before. The next time we see them, they are in Maryland. Marin wakes up and is looking around the house for her father. You could tell they're kind of in like a dilapidated trailer or, you know, a place that they don't have a lot of belongings. They left all their belongings behind because they needed to make haste and get out of there. While she's going around and looking for her dad, she sees a envelope with a tape recorder sitting on the kitchen table. And inside the envelope is some cash her birth certificate, and the tape to put in the tape recorder to listen. So when she begins to listen to the tape recorder, it's her father's voice telling her that she has to destroy the tape after she's done listening to it. And he begins to recount that the first time something like this happened, she was three, and then she immediately turns it off. So we're beginning to see now that her father is trying to give her back these memories that this cannibalistic tendency, this feeding has always been a part of her, and it's been impacting his life for a long time. And that's presumably why her mother has never been in the picture. So Marin buys a bus ticket to get to Ohio. She found her mother's residence or like birthplace on her own birth certificate. So she's going to try to chase down that address and see if she can find her mother or anything about her mother. So on the bus to Ohio, she listens to a little bit more of the tape recording. We found out that the first person Marin ever ate was her babysitter, whom she killed and partially ate, which sucks. I loved the line where her father was like, I found you asleep with blood on your mouth and I went fishing around in your mouth and found what looked like it could have been part of an earlobe, essentially. Mm -hmm. The next thing out of his mouth was, I was so glad she wasn't wearing earrings because you could have (laughs) choked. And it's like, oh my God, like you could tell that like he loves his daughter and whether it's in this instance in the tape or later on in the tapes, he's like, I believe that you have to do it. He's like, I believe that it's something that you do have to do, but I just don't know how to handle it anymore. Oh, it's so sad. It's so sad. She turns off the tape recorder again. We're getting the sense that she's listening to this in bits and pieces. And when she's in Ohio, I don't know what she's doing. I guess maybe she's waiting for the next bus. So she kind of has to find a place to stay. She's originally reading on a bench at first, but then it starts to rain. And then all of a sudden, this random man is standing on a street corner staring at her. And he approaches her immediately. We're getting some sinister vibes. I honestly think because A, he's a man standing in the dark talking to this young girl. And B, because he has a very like sinister pacing of voice. He talks slow. I told Shay that it kind of reminds me of Hannibal Lecter a little bit. Like he speaks very methodically. I don't know how to explain it, but it gave me really bad vibes. But it's also kind of like, is this man all there? Because he refers to himself in the third person. He introduces himself as Sully and he's like, oh, Sully's a friend. Sully doesn't want to hurt you. But not in a way that is domineering, in a way that seems almost innocent. It's weird because he has this cadence and this pacing that's very uncomfortable. But the way he comes off is, again, like he just isn't on her level of cognition. I don't know how else to say that. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But really right away, he informs her that he too is an eater and explains to her that he basically could smell her, which we later find out was from like half a mile away. He could smell that another eater was around. So he approached her, offers to take her back to his house and, you know, take care of her for the night so she can have a safe place to stay. 
And obviously, Marin is feeling very not safe in this situation because she's a young girl. This is an older man. It's raining. It's outside. She's in a place that's unfamiliar. So she follows him to what's presumably his house. I think she says something along the lines of a meal, that's it, being like, that's your only expectation. And he's like, I have one rule. Feeders don't feed on other feeders, Mm -hmm. essentially. So that kind of puts her in a place of ease where they go inside. He begins cooking chicken, not human meat. She sees on the wall, there's just some art and some pictures that don't look like they would belong to him. Mm -hmm. And she asks, whose house is this? And he's like, why don't you go take a look? So Marin goes upstairs and sees that there is a still living but dying woman on the floor of her bedroom. She's an older elderly woman. So immediately Marin becomes very upset. She wants to leave. She's telling Sully, how could you do this? But he explains to her, you know, I'm not killing her. I could smell that she was dying. Before she even goes up the steps to check it out, he's coaching her on being aware of her senses and what she can smell. So she's starting to become aware of the fact that she can smell certain things surrounding people and death and eaters and things like that. So she was to leave. He somehow convinces her to stay. He essentially says, you can control it now that you're young, but when you get older, you're not going to be able to pass up a feeding. And I can smell on you that you haven't eaten fully for a few months, and it's going to get harder to resist as time goes on. But she still says, can I have some privacy? And he says, yeah, of course. So she locks herself in a room overnight and falls asleep, but wakes to the smell of the old woman passing away on the floor. Uh Uh-huh. So she walks out of her room and she sees that Sully is kneeling over this woman in his white underwear and undershirt and just eating her. And then Marin kneels down on the other side of this woman and joins. And so they eat this woman together. So they go to the kitchen afterwards and, you know, they're both cleaning themselves off and Sully pulls out his bag and pulls this bundle in a sheet out. What it turns out to be is the hair of all the people that he has eaten before as like little mementos, presumably all women because they're all braids, but he has a very long braid. Yes, he does. Also, did you notice that when we first meet him, he's wearing a jacket that has all of those little pins on the lapels? Yeah. I think they're earrings. (gasps) Oh, I was wondering what they were. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good detail. I think that they're earrings. Oh, wow. Because from afar, it kind of looks like he's a vet, right? Or like a fishing guy. Right. He has all of these things. Just has tackles on his lapels. Yeah. That's what I think they are. I noticed a lot of them were like butterflies, though. I mean, it's the 1980s. I feel like big, fun butterfly earrings would be very appropriate for a lot of women to wear. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's like a thing. Or like roaches. What are they called? Brooches. Brooches. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it could be other jewelry as well. Right. So they stretch out this hair chain, and it's about like 10 feet long. Mm. And this, I think, both disturbs Marin, but also comforts her to know that he's doing it ethically or that he's doing it in a way that doesn't feel exploitative or for the thrill of it. Because you can tell she's kind of of the Cullen philosophy of feeding, if you will, (laughs) where it's like, I'm going to avoid it at all costs. And if I'm going to do it, I'm going to steal blood from the blood bank. You know what I mean? Right. She definitely sees herself as this not good person where she's meeting Sully, who seems to share some level of ethos. And I think it's making her feel better because this is the first person she's ever met who is also like her. Right. But nonetheless, Sully goes to take a shower. And while he's in the shower, she flees and gets on the bus and leaves him behind. And he watches as she leaves on the bus out of town. Marin makes it to Indiana and she's in a Walgreens type of store and she's doing some light theft. (laughs) Some light shoplifting. Yeah, just some light shoplifting to get her through because we know she doesn't have a lot of money and she spent a lot of it on her bus tickets. She sees some jerk make some kind of crude comment to a mother holding her baby and she yells at him, don't talk to her like that. And there's another guy who we will later meet, whose name is Lee. Mr. Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Mr. Timothy Chalamet. He also joins in, antagonizes this man, steals his hat super quick, and then the man chases him out of the store. And you could tell it's for Marin's benefit because Marin yells, don't talk to her like that. And as the aggressor is about to respond, Lee steps in and insults him next so that he gets mad at him and not Marin. So it is very protective, but we just see the man chasing Lee out of the store. And then I guess some time goes by, like they should just spend time in the store because then she goes outside and it's dusk. 
some time goes by. I don't know exactly how that time goes by, but when she emerges from the store, she sees that there is an abandoned building across a field and she watches Lee exit the abandoned building shirtless with blood all down the front of him and he's washing it off with a bottle of water. As he approaches, presumably to steal this man's car, he says to her, oh, he's in there. If you want (laughs) what's left of him, pretty much. It's just kind of like, ah, you know, he's still in there if you want him. So instead of pursuing the man who is laying dead in the abandoned building, she decides to pursue Lee and say, listen, can you kind of just show me what's going on? I'm very new to this. Lee kind of rebuffs her for a little bit, but then eventually relents and they drive off together in the dead man's truck, which will become the setting for a lot of the rest of the movie. It's a very nostalgic truck. We're very comforted by the sight of it. (laughs) They begin just traveling together, you know, throughout the different states. We get montages of them in diners where they have conversations about their first times feeding. Mm -hmm. There's a cute little exchange where, you know, tell me about your first time. Oh, it was a babysitter. She's like, me too. (laughs) I love that part. So funny. Oh, God. And they're getting to know each other. You could tell that Marin's giving up more information than Lee is. Marin even goes as far as to offer to show him the tape that her father left when two strangers pull up on them at a lake. Yeah, and these men are, at first I was like, oh, I feel bad for you guys, you're going down. But then it turns out to be that they are also eaters. Their names are Jake and Brad. However, at a campfire that night, in conversation, we find out that Brad was not born an eater. He became one voluntarily. In this weird story about he was on duty as a police officer and found Jake, but did not punish him, he ended up joining Jake and they became fast friends. Marin is very upset with the fact that he was not born that way, that he is choosing to live a life that we know has caused her a lot of pain. So she leaves. Lee later joins her in the truck and they try to stealthily escape. Why do you think that they were so nervous? Just they were getting weird vibes from those men. I mean, those men were giving really weird vibes. They were so dirty or the one was so dirty. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was the idea that not everyone shares the same philosophy Mm. of like, don't feed on a feeder. There's also an exchange between Jake, Brad, and Lee once Marin goes to sleep in the truck where I think Brad says, oh, well, she's lucky that she has you to show her the ropes. And Jake says, no, I think it's the other way around. I think you need her because you're under this presumption that you have all this under control and you don't. Like, all you have to do is pull one thread and it'll all start coming apart. And we see a very knowing look on Lee's face where that is very true for him. Where Marin has this guilt and this complex about feeding. Lee has the ideology of, I need to do it, so why should I feel bad about it? And it's very much a conflict between the two of them. Yeah. So after that, they stay very briefly in Lee's hometown. It's at his aunt's house. She had died earlier that year. So they're just squatting there before they continue on their journey. Lee also has a little sister, Kayla, or Kay. He wants to help teach her how to drive. He like had made her a promise. She's his little sister. He's like, I got to go teach her how to drive. Kayla ends up visiting the house after the driving session and she's very upset, but we do meet her momentarily. She's frustrated that Lee has said that he's leaving again. I guess he slipped a note in her purse that she found before he could escape. (laughs) But he, you know, tries to calm her down by saying, it's just a couple weeks. I'll be back. Don't worry. And it's alluded to that Lee can't go into town, that there's something that the people in his hometown have against him, but we don't exactly know what that is yet. And Lee is not giving that information up to Marin, but Kay alludes to this in their argument. Then we have a really cute montage of Lee and Marin going to a carnival. They just look like this young couple in love. They're making out (laughs) on the Ferris wheel. And Marin says to Lee, like, Lee, I'm hungry. Oh, my God. And like any cute partner would just go and get his special lady. A funnel cake. (laughs) (laughs) He like sets out on the hunt to find somebody to eat. Yeah, he goes cruising and I literally like jostled Elise. I'm like, he's about to queer bait. And yep, that's exactly what he does. He does. And listen, the blouses that Timothy Chalamet is wearing. First of all, they are literal blouses. They are blouses. They are like for tiny women and he's wearing them. What is he like 5'7"? I don't know. All he said in one scene was he's 140 pounds soaking wet. 
He's so skinny. Yes, in he this is. Movie. He is. You were pointing out the one had like pearl buttons. On oh my god! It. Yeah, he's wearing this like <laughs> chic little cardigan at one point with pearl buttons. Not to mention his hair is like a faux hawk type of situation oh, yeah. that is dyed like a reddish pink, mm-hmm. with the sides are black. So he's very much again giving Machine Gun Kelly a little bit. <laughs> There was even like one scene where his sister's like, and take off that shirt. You look like a F slur for gay people. And he <laughs> takes it off right away. And it's so sad. Lady blouses, I think, are part of his charm. There are many scenes, like the scene he's he dancing to kiss. I'm like, who? <sighs> I'm a little confused. He looks great. He's, he's, doing, <laughs> he's doing a really good job. He's doing a really good job. Uh-huh. He finds a carnival worker that lets him take a couple spins free on this game. They agree that they're going to go smoke weed in his car once he closes up his stand at 11 o'clock. Thus, the trap ensues. Marin and Lee are in the truck. The man approaches. Marin hides. Lee and the man go walking off into the corn. And Marin is very surprised to see her boyfriend, I guess. Pull this man in for a steamy makeout session mm-hmm. and then follows the noises of a hand job mm-hmm. into the corn just in time to see Lee slit this man's throat just as he's about to finish. Yeah, he's not even fully dead yet. And Lee gets down and starts feasting. This was, I think, a pretty visceral scene. Well, it's like the first thing that Lee goes for is the man's nipple. To me, like, I was thinking about this too. This doesn't necessarily spoil the movie, but Lee doesn't eat women. Oh. We never see Lee eat a woman. That is a really good point. He eats the man in the convenience store and he eats this man. I don't remember if they ever really feed on screen again together like this. No. But like, we only see Lee eating men. Mm-hmm. Marin ate the old woman in the mm-hmm. beginning and then she's an opportunist after mm-hmm. that. Lee only eats men. So part of me is like, okay, obviously he's meant to read a little because this is the 80s and he's dressing the way that he's dressing. Is it a weird embodiment of his daddy issues? It might be or it might just be like a queer coding of some degree. I mm-hmm. don't know. Because that's what I said. I was like, oh, he's queer baiting. But then I'm like, well, maybe not. Like maybe yeah. he's just like a fluid dude. That is really interesting that you say that because we do see them, but like, yes, we only see him eat men and we see her eat whatever. If we're looking at this through like that well-established idea that cannibalism is supposed to mimic like sex or sexuality, it does suggest that both of them have very like fluid sexuality. Also to the fact that he didn't have to give the guy a blowjob. He could have just ding, ding, fweed him. (laughs) Ding, ding, fweed. Yeah, you're right. I was kind of wondering, like, is that supposed to be, like, merciful? Like, he knows he's going to kill this guy. He's going to try to give him... One last wank. Yeah, one last good feeling. Or, like, maybe, like, the ecstasy of ejaculating will help mask the pain of literally murder. I don't know how it works. I took it as, like, a sadomasochist thing on his part where he's (gasps) like, I'm going to get you as close as you can to pleasure and then I'm going to kill you. I thought that he did finish, though. I thought he was, like, in the middle of finishing. He said, I'm about to, I'm about to, and then he slit his throat. (sighs) Interesting. It is very interesting. It's okay, Lee. You do Very clear at this point that, again, those parallels between cannibalism and sex are abundantly clear in this film, just like in, I think, every cannibal film we've talked about. So after they kill this man, they drive back separately to the address that was listed on his wallet, Lee in the blue pickup, and Marin in this car that was his that they picked up. But they find out, basically, that he had a wife and a kid. Marin becomes so upset, right? Because the man that they had killed previously and squatted at his house, he was like this single guy who was coded as this absolute jerk off, like no one was going to miss him. She's upset that they killed somebody who had a wife and a kid and a life. And she feels very much that they fucked up. This very much fucks with Marin. And this is where we see that conflict exist between Lee and Marin, where Lee's like, how dare you make this harder than it needs to be? Mm. And Marin's like, you killed a man that had a wife and a kid. And he's like, we didn't know. I didn't know. We have to do this. What's the other option? Again, like this tension is going to continue to be sowed throughout. Then Marin decides that they're going to go on a road trip hoping to find her mom. She finds a phone book and doesn't find any info about her mom, but finds info about her grandmother. So they go to Minnesota, where her grandmother is. Marin shows up at her doorstep, and you could tell that her grandmother tries to, like, rebuke the interaction at first, but then relents and lets Marin in, shows her some pictures of her mom and her as a baby, 
and says to Marin that Janelle, her mother, is no longer with us, which is obviously very devastating to Marin. And it's also revealed through this interaction that Janelle, Marin's mother, was adopted by Barbara. She was adopted after she was discovered abandoned behind like a store near dumpster or something, which to me, because this movie is very much getting us prepared to learn that Janelle is also an eater, is saying that, oh, maybe something happened with Janelle. How old was she when she was abandoned? Maybe something happened and she was abandoned as a baby. Like maybe her parents didn't stick with her because something happened with her feeding. I mean, she could have been three years old. I mean, that's how old Marin was when she ate the babysitter. So that was kind of a moment. And this is confirmed relatively quickly because once Marin finds out that Janelle was adopted, she asks, listen, hey, I know that we're not blood related, but I'm blood related to your daughter. Can you just answer this question? Did Janelle ever hurt anybody? The grandmother is very quickly like, what are you talking about? Why would you ask me that? And based on that reaction, Marin's like, I know that she has. I just need you to tell me what you know, because I'm going through it and I just need to know what's going on. And then her grandmother's like, well, you can ask her yourself. And Marin's like, you just told me she was dead. And the <laughs> grandmother was like, I said she was no longer with us. She is in a psychiatric facility that she checked herself into in some other town. Fergus Falls, baby. Fergus Falls. So armed with that information, Marin and Lee take off toward Fergus Falls. In the hospital, Marin is able to meet with her mother pretty easily. The nurse walks her back. She explains that it's been a while since Janelle has been a risk as far as violent behavior goes. She's pretty subdued into herself now. The self-harming and lashing out has stopped. But when she walks Marin in to meet Janelle, we can see that Janelle has eaten her own hands, which is pretty tough. Then the nurse hands Marin a letter that she tells Marin while also affirming to Janelle, like, see, I kept this letter in your stuff for your daughter. Here it is. And then she's like, your mother wrote this letter for you 15 years ago in case you were to ever come. And essentially the contents of the letter are saying like, if you're reading this letter, it means your father broke his promise to me that he wouldn't tell you where I am. I left because I wanted to keep you safe. And if you're coming here to find me, it means that it's already started for you. The letter is very bleak. It essentially is saying there's no love for us out there. You know, we either die or we end up in a cell like me and don't be like me. Mm -hmm. So she essentially is saying don't try because love's going to hurt and all we can do is really hurt each other. At the very climactic conclusion of the reading of that letter, Janelle tries to attack Marin. She is restrained by the nurse, and Marin leaves. She can't get out of there quick enough. She feels disgusted. She feels dejected. She feels so pessimistic. And even though her and Lee drive away from the facility, and he tries, I guess, maybe in his way to be present with her, she pretends that she's going to pull over and get gas while Lee is nodding off. She leaves money on his dashboard and then runs away. So when he wakes up, she's not there. Yeah, because they had had a fight right after she left the hospital where she is yelling at him saying, why can't you just let me have this? Why can't you let me like be upset about this? And he's like, I don't get all in this like you do. We have three options. It's go in there like your mom, kill yourself or feed. So which are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And Marin can't do it. She's like, I can't do this with you anymore. And yes, leaves him the money and runs away. And he is very distraught and is very sad. Like we both saw the money going into the dashboard and we're like, no. (gasps) And while you're feeling upset, get Mm -hmm. ready for a curveball Mm -hmm. because fucking Sully is back. So as Marin is walking down the road, a van pulls over in front of her, like some kind of AC repair or like television repair van, which is like, did you kill that person, Sully? Sully gets out of the van. He tries to play it off like it's a coincidence. Like, oh, funny seeing you here. And Marin immediately is like, why are you following me? Mm -hmm. Because it would be crazy to think that they are just meeting again out of coincidence. Like they are states away, thousands of miles away from where they first encountered one another. So he basically admits to following her. He has seen her with Lee. I don't even know what to say about this scene. It's very well written in the sense where Sully is trying very hard to come off like, well, there's not a lot of us out there, so we should stick together. And, you know, I really like the talks that we had about our first times. 
why don't you just come on a ride with old Sully? And she challenges him being like, why do you keep calling yourself Sully? I don't know if it's trying to play at a mental illness thing or if it's trying to play to the idea that Sully is this vagabond character that he tries to embody to separate himself from what he does. Mm. But it comes off very split in a way. Marin says, oh, it's uncomfortable that you follow me here. And he's like, I've never dried off next to somebody before. And he says that over and over again. He's like, that was special what we shared. I've never dried off next to somebody before. So Sully had never fed with somebody before. And because they shared that experience, he thinks that that was intimacy in a way. And Baron's like, I understand you feel that way, but it has to go both ways. And he's like, you don't like Sully. You don't like me. Marin essentially says, I'm not going with you. And we see Sully's demeanor change very quickly. And he calls her a cunt Mm -hmm. and drives off. Very scary. We do not like Sully. No. It would have been surprising to me if, well, I guess he could have just remained kind of an ambiguous character, but that sinister interaction was very much, I could see this absolutely happening based on what we know about him and the fact that he keeps a rope of braids in his bag. But also, you had a good point. Like, what are we seeing? Is this a man who has been isolated and lonely his whole life? Is this the result of the life that he has had to live because he's a feeder? Like, it is really sad in that way. He says at one point he's old enough to be her dad. So he's got to be in his 50s. And it is really sad thinking about, you know, if he's been on his own this whole time, that's going to have an effect on someone. But we still hate him. (laughs) Yeah, they pepper in enough things that Sully says where we do still feel that sympathy for him Mm -hmm. and we don't see him as an immediate threat until he goes off on her. Yeah, and when he turns like that, it's so fucking scary. So Marin gets away. I think at this point it's July. So when Marin starts her journey, it's about May. She has all those adventures. Now it's July. Some time has passed since her and Lee separated. But she returns to Lee's hometown and talks to his sister, Kayla, at like an ice cream stand and gets some information about him. He stayed in his hometown for a little bit, but then moved in a tent to like a lake because he was tired of his mom, I guess, asking him a million bajillion questions. So Marin goes to the lake. She sees Lee sitting by the water and they have an embrace at the bank. And it's so sweet because you could tell that Lee feels very guarded at first and like doesn't hug her back, but you could tell he can't help himself but to like lean into the embrace and that they missed each other. And it's also this conversation between Marin and Kayla where Marin learns a little bit more about Lee's father who Lee has been very protective of talking about. So Kayla reveals that her and Lee's father was a drunk, was abusive, and hit Lee and then hit Kayla. Out of protection, Lee put their father in a headlock and told Kayla to run and call the cops. And when they found Lee, he was beaten up and covered in his own blood. But people in the town thought that he killed his own father and that's why he has the reputation that he has. But once they reunite on the lake, they decide to go west and just camp and live on the road and kind of go back to their old times. And it's one of these times on the side of the road where Marin says to Lee, like, hey, I talked to your sister and learned more about your dad. Lee says Kayla doesn't know what actually happened. And through a very tearful confession, we find out that Lee killed his own father because his father was also an eater and came at him with his teeth. Lee tied him up, left him in a barn outside of town for three days until he died and ate him. And this is where we cried. Yeah, we're crying. We're crying. I mean, this is a gorgeous scene. This is Timothy Chalamet acting his ass off. It's this sense of vulnerability that Lee has always had something that he has felt guilty about. And he hasn't let Marin feel guilty, but Marin is letting him feel guilty. Mm. And he says, like, you don't think I'm a bad person. You don't think I'm a bad person. And she looks at him and says, I would have done the same exact thing, which is haunting because like yeah i would have ate my own father too (laughs) but they're crying and they're kissing and she's just like i know that i would have done the same thing and i know that i love you and i'm like (laughs) i feel like the fact that they're both eaters and they have these urges and these impulses that are so different from anything that i would understand right like in this kind of like fictionalized hopefully world I feel like it almost makes their relationship so much more special because me as an audience member, I can't understand it all. I can't point and understand exactly what everything is, but they're still so in love and you can still feel their chemistry. And it's like, yeah, I'm sitting in the theater crying right now because these two are fucking soulmates. They're fucking soulmates up there. 
they found each other in this big wide world. They're unpacking <laughs> trauma on the side of the road. <laughs> Somewhere in Nebraska, they're embracing, and you can tell that Lee feels seen and understood because he was so guarded telling Marin that because he didn't want to see himself as a bad person. And there's a really good piece of dialogue. I think when they're fighting outside of the psychiatric facility, he says, this is what this is. You're freaking out because you're seeing yourself on the outside for the first time, and I'm freaking out because I'm seeing myself on the outside for the first time, and this is hard, right? This is what we do. This is whatever this is. Oh, my God. It's giving fucking Ryan Gosling in the notebook. Oh, yeah. And he's like, and you're going to be a smartass and I'm going to be a this. And yeah. that's what we do. And we fight. And yeah. it's like that moment by the car. Lee actually has yes. a scene like that where he's uh-huh. like, what do you want me to say to you right now? How can I make this better? And it's like, you're watching a relationship unravel and you're watching <laughs> communication exercises just around the idea that they have to eat people to survive. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what kind of magic went down. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, we're not done yet. No, it's not done because- Oh, oh me oh, in the theater. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm ready for the movie to end now. And right now. And I know, she turns to right me, now. she's like, just let the movie be over. Let the movie be over. And then I Googled the runtime and there was a half hour. I was like, no, I was so upset. Because then, of course, in like the gorgeous happy moment that this is, they decide that they're just going to drive the truck and make a life wherever it stops working. Because it had been established the truck was having some mechanical issues. And wherever they end up, they're just going to make a normal life together. So they end up in Michigan and Marin gets a job at the bookstore at the university. They're assimilating. Mm. We see Lee cooking pancakes and talking to his sister on the phone about how she wants to come see their new apartment. And we're like, no, something's coming. So days later, Marin returns home from work, presumably, and she gets in the house and she calls for Lee. He doesn't answer. And she looks into the bedroom and sees on her bed a very familiar leather satchel. And when she approaches the leather satchel, we see a very familiar sheet bundle inside. It is Sully's sheet bundle of braids. And Sully attacks her from the side, holds a knife to her, forces her on the bed by her throat, and then like lays on her. It's a very tense scene where you don't know if she's about to get sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Because he is like drooling at the mouth. Oh my God, yes, he is. Their pelvises are in line with each other. He kind of is moving in a way where you could tell that he feels aroused and she is staying calm and she's saying, Sully, you know, me and Lee are together now. And he's like, you think that's what I want? I forget what he says, but he says something to the degree of, I just want to feel like at home again, or I just want to feel seen again. He is acting very childish. He's laying his head on her chest and he kisses her on the cheek, but not in a sexual way. It's like he needs to be held. She's obviously very terrified because she's being restrained by her wrists and he has a knife, but he is just like laying on her and cuddling her when Lee enters. And I was thinking like, I guess Sully wouldn't have sensed that because he was so preoccupied with Marin. Because you know how Lee has like a really good smell for other cannibals? I think that's why he returned home because Sully had said something along the lines of, I just watched your boyfriend leave like a half hour ago. So it's just you and me here. And then after what ensues ensues, he said, I could smell him from like two miles away. Mm. And I think he came back sooner than Mm. he thought because he knew that something was happening. Something was wrong. So yes, Lee is in the house. He sneaks up behind Sully, puts a plastic grocery bag over his head, pulls him back. Now Lee has Sully in the grocery bag trying to restrain him. Marin tries to get up to help. But keep in mind, Sully has a knife in his hand. He reaches back and stabs Lee in the chest. We can't see exactly where at this point. Everything is moving so quickly. Marin gets a hold of the knife and is able to stab Sully in the chest multiple times. They drag him through the apartment to the bathroom, put him in the tub. Where? (laughs) Um... Lee is like in the tub, like he has gotten in the tub and he has the body on top of him, like he has dragged him in. Marin reaches into one of the stab wounds in Sully's abdomen. It starts ripping out his organs. Sully finally rips through the plastic bag with his hands, I guess, and takes one last breath before he perishes. Yeah, and we cut to Marin and she has blood on her chin and it's presumed that she has eaten his heart. 
Was it his heart? It was his heart because it was in his chest. Oh my God, how would she get that? That's what I, That's why I was confused. But the shape of it looked heart-ish to me. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't his stomach, it was his chest. Oh, that's so weird. Okay, all right. But you're right. It would be very protected. So it, it seemed like it happened a little too easily. I agree. Eat his heart. I love the symbolism there. I'll take it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which, and again, the last thing that Sully saw her doing was breaking his rule that mm. he set. So I thought that well, was he really was interesting. He was about to break his own rule. I don't know what he was about to do. I don't do. know what the fuck he was about to do. I don't know if he just wanted comfort. And or- who even knows that that's his rule? He mm-hmm. knows what to say to make somebody trust him. So we fail to mention <laughs> the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen moment. Oh, yeah. Again, this is imperfect. We're sorry. <laughs> there was a scene. So remember Jack and Brad around the fire by the lake, the other feeders. When they are having a conversation with Lee and Marin, they talk about how Brad doesn't have his full bones yet. And Lee says, full bones. And <laughs> Jack says, bones and all. And we both go, ooh. <laughs> yeah, literally Leo DiCaprio me Pointing at the screen like, ooh, there it is. <laughs> and... Jack describes this kind of as like a transcendent feeling like that's when you're at your strongest or that's when it's at its best. That's when you know that you've, I guess, succeeded is when you've eaten somebody bones and all. So we're thinking like, oh, okay, Sully's dead. Like, is this going to be their opportunity? But Lee stumbles out of the bathtub and we see that the stab wound is in his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's, I mean, it's mortal. He's losing consciousness. Marin is sobbing. Oh, wait. Also, when Marin saw that braid rope earlier. Well, this happens now. Oh, this happens now. Oh, so they look at the braid rope. Yeah. There's a new braid on there. It's bleach blonde with cute little scrunchies on it. It's Kayla's. Yeah. So Sully has killed Lee's little sister. That to me was the moment where I knew Lee's not going to make it out of this because he has a line earlier about how like after what happened with his dad, he said he would have killed himself if it wasn't for Kayla. Now Kayla's gone. This is unraveling so quickly. This is all unraveling so quickly. Lee is going down. And again, you could tell how much guilt this guy is carrying around that he pretended he didn't because he keeps saying, am I bad? Am I bad? Am I bad? And Baron's like, no, you're good. You're good. You're uh-huh. good. And it's all my... Oh, uh, we are... Again, we are tearing up. <laughs> I know. We are soft. We, we are very upset at this point. And then he knows he's dying and he begs Marin to eat him, bones and all. And she's refusing. They have a very passionate makeout session. And as she goes to like kiss his neck and down his chest, there's so much music and it's so beautiful, but you see yeah, no him dialogue at this crying point. as she begins eating his chest. The last scene of the movie is Marin sitting behind Lee. They are both shirtless and she is holding Lee from behind, which I believe is the symbolism that she has him or she has taken him in bones and all. Fuck knows what happens to Sully. Fuck knows what happens to this apartment that's now covered oh, in yeah. every, all this blood. Well, we got a shot at the end of like a now empty, spotless apartment. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Which I guess she's out of there. Fucking hell. Sully's huge. I don't know. But then, yeah, that's the movie. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I've... Mother level devastation. Not for me. For me. This is the kind of movie that I live on. You know, the cannibal element is a new element, but this whole doomed lovers, misunderstood life, heart-wrenching ending, this is my shit. So adding this cannibal element, I felt like I could handle it because we just did Cannibal Power Hour a couple months ago and I felt like I had a lot of practice. I could go into it. But yeah, the crying, I was, I knew that was going to happen. I was like, this is where I lose my shit. Like, this is the realm I'm going to walk into and know that I'm not coming out the same. <laughs> Now, do you think in an alternate universe, Lee and Marin become Steve and Noah from Fresh? <laughs> like they find a way to satiate it in a way that's like... They make it a business. They make it a business. I don't know because they would have had to do this because we get a good line from Marin in the beginning where she still thinks she can deny and she still thinks she has a choice over it. And she's like, 60 more years of this? Like, how do we do this? How do we do this? Especially with the knowledge with Sully saying, like, as you get older, it gets worse. You have to do it more often. And her mom said that too. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost like we were watching the last time it was ever going to be good again as it was had that not happened to Lee. Right. That's a good point. It was never going to stay like that, even without Sully. And then what would a child be of two eaters? I don't know. Maybe it would cancel out. (laughs) (laughs) But then we would get fucking raw. Yeah. We would get Justine from Raw, where she was raised as like a strict vegan vegetarian, and then she's going to go away to vet school and eat everybody. 
I don't even know. I also kind of love the idea that this movie just felt so this could be a real story about people that actually are eaters. But I also loved the way that they weaved that guy in there who chose to be an eater. Because I felt like you could look at this movie and be like, oh, people who are outcasts are just all cannibals. No big deal. But like, then you get to see fucking Brad. who's like, no, I'm just here because I want to be like, he really is a crazy person. Right. So I like that they had him there. Like, no, that's not what we're talking. That's that guy. Right. This guy is those guys. Yes, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Exactly. You know, that's, you're so right about that. I loved that. But I also like that they didn't take the Edward Cullen angle of it where it's like, I'm a monster. This is the skin of a killer, Bella. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad that they didn't take that approach where it's like, I'm this monster and I'm this self-hating da-da-da. And they did that with Marin to an extent, but you have Lee who just accepts it for what it is. He's like, yeah. listen, I have my little sister at home. I have the people that I love. I go away, I feed, and I come back. And this is just what I have to do. There's no need logicking it out. Like, this is just what it is. Right. So yeah, I suggest it. I suggest it. I think it was great. The score was beautiful. The cinematography was beautiful. The acting was amazing. It is a beast. It's an emotional beast. So get what you need. Get your wine if you're of age or your popcorn if you're of any age. <laughs> um, get anything you know you need to get through. Get a pet, a stuffed animal, and watch it because I think that it's definitely amazing. And then after that, listen to The Preacher's Daughter by Ethel Kane. <laughs> It's so good. Like, you almost (laughs) forget it's about cannibalism. Like, it doesn't let you forget that it's about cannibalism. But yeah, like you said, it's beautifully shot. I loved the camera swoops that stayed from Suspiria. Like, Mm. Luca Guadagnino just knows how to shoot a fucking film. Mm -hmm. Knows how to cast a fucking film. These people know how to (laughs) act. And oh my, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And it's surprising to me that cannibal movies have become one of our favorite subgenres. Yeah. And some of the more, like... (laughs) I was just so excited to see things in the theater again, like just the energy and just being able to have you there was just so like exciting. It was really exciting. It was really exciting. I don't think I could do that for any movie, but I felt like I knew enough about this. I should say like the conventions of the genre, the cannibal genre. Like I knew enough going into this that I think I could help myself get through it. I don't know. We'll see what the next movie is that we see together in theaters. If you have one that you like the look of. (laughs) Yes. Let us know. Yeah, let us know email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast to keep up to date with us, send us any suggestions, comments, anything like that. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.